All right. Well, uh, good morning. Good morning, and thank you for uh, being the church and for bringing it uh, into our room. If you're new today, thanks for joining us. If you're worshiping online, uh, thank you for being with us as well. Um, can we do this just to remind ourselves that we are a family? We're doing this together. If you're online, you could just shoot a message in the chat box. But can you turn to about four people, five people around us, five people around you, and, and look at them in the eyes, make eye contact, and say hello to them? Can we do that? Say hello to a few people. You can wave, you can say hi, yeah, but let's acknowledge that we're in this together. All right. Um, if you're new to Orlando, um, if you're new to our church, uh, we welcome you. Um, at the end of our service, a couple things are going on, but, but one thing, um, we don't typically have food. We haven't had food since the pandemic, but there are to-go uh, boxes of poke bowls that have been put together by our graduating class of our youth ministry in support of their friend and classmate, uh, Matthias Kim, who um, had uh, uh, a collapsed lung surgery and, and things like that. And as their way of just loving and supporting him, and as our church's way of doing that, there'll be poke bowls, which is raw fish and, and, uh, and other stuff in it. Uh, there'll be to-go boxes, and you can take them, and you can leave and go home and eat, go on a date with your whomever. Um, but uh, we're going to uh, refrain from eating in here. Um, and, and if you're new, if you want to meet uh, either Pastor Josiah, myself, um, Rick Terrell, who helps to place people in house churches, which is a small, smaller gatherings to help us really be the church. Uh, we'll be available in the cafe and we'd love to chat with you also. Um, one of the, the things about living in Orlando that I've come to realize is that, um, gosh, people visit Orlando a lot from out of, out of town, out of state, out of country, from all around the world, people come to Orlando to visit. And so um, every now and then I'll get a message, either a text or a you know, Facebook message or email or something from somebody saying, hey, I'm coming down to Orlando. Um, do you have any recommendations for restaurants that we could go to? What are some cool places that we need to come to to eat? And so um, I remember the first time I was asked that question, it kind of racked my brain trying to think of what would be the best place? I don't want to lead them astray. What would be the best places for them to eat? And so I, I jotted down a, a few things and I sent it off to them. Um, like a month or two months or three months later, I would get another similar message. And so I realized, um, rather than reinventing the wheel, I'm just going to kind of copy that email and send it out to whomever else asked for it. And so I had this list, and I remember um, as I was compiling the list, I was asking somebody uh, in, at Harvest. He is a, uh, pretty much a foodie. And I said, hey, I've got this list. What would you recommend? And he asked me why. He's like, you're trying to go on a date? I was like, well, I'd love to do that also, but I'm trying to make a list, right? Trying to make a list uh, to send to somebody. So he said, send me your list. Show me what you've got. And so I sent him my list. And he's like, dude, DL, these are like 10 years old. Like none of these places are that good anymore, except for, you know, a couple of them. But these are so yesterday. And he's like, you, you need to get with the time. There's so much more to the restaurant scene, to the food scene in Orlando than you've got on your list. And then he said to me, you are missing out on so much that we have to offer. That you're missing out on so much. When I heard that, part of me said, I, I guess I am. I would love to try some of these newer joints or these new places that people think are hip and cool. But then another part of me is just like, I'm fine just visiting the places that I know and love and enjoy. Um, I was content with that. The reality was there was so much more to be explored, but the dueling reality was I was pretty comfortable with what I, was know with what I knew already. As we gather this morning to worship on the first day of August, can I ask if that might describe the reality of your relationship with God? That when you talk about God and people say, let me look at what you're talking about, they're like, dude, this is from 10 years ago. There's so much more of God to be explored. And while you know that and part of you wants that, there's also another part of you that says, you know what, though? I'm pretty comfortable with what I already know. Today, I want to read to you from Psalm 24. Psalm 24, my prayer is that it would elicit within us or it would foster within us, it would create within us, it would spur within us a longing to see that there's more of God and then to say, God, I want more of you in my life. Psalm 24 is the cry of a psalmist and of a generation who knew that there was more and they weren't content with what they had of God. Psalm 24, it says, a psalm of David, the great king, the king during the glory days, a high point of the empire that was the people of God. He writes this psalm. This is the word of God for the people of God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, 
the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. He will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Selah. And that means pause, rest, chew on that. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Selah, this is the word of God. When I was in high school, um, I was on a mission trip in Mexico. I grew up in church. I had known about Jesus, but at, at this point, didn't really have a relationship with him. Didn't know him well. Didn't know him personally. So here I was in Mexico, mixing cement, doing all kinds of like these different activities. And that uh, evening, the evening, uh, we were to have a worship service, an outdoor worship service that was led by um, the Mexican church there that we were doing construction for. And uh, about maybe an hour, two hours, I forget the time frame, but a little bit before the worship service started, uh, clouds grew really dark, really ominous, really scary looking clouds, and it was certainly going to rain. And so I remember thinking in my mind, I wonder how they do it here. Like if it rains, like what do they do? They don't have a place where everybody can go inside and worship. It's too small, so I wonder what they're going to do if it rains. Well, sure enough, just as the skies could reveal, it started raining a little bit before the worship started. It started raining, 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 raining. Um, but the chairs were still set up. These plastic, white plastic chairs were still set up outside. And um, our team leader said, hey, we're going to uh, go into worship now. So we sat down to worship. We're all getting wet. And I remember thinking, this is like really uncomfortable. Sitting there worshiping, and the Mexican pastor went up there, and his call to worship as he opened the Bible was Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. He read, the earth is the Lord's in Spanish, and it was translated in English. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And as he prayed, he said, God, the earth belongs to you. We belong to you. The rain belongs to the clouds. But all this stuff belongs to you. And in order that we might worship you rightly, would you hold back the rains? And he talked about how you're the owner. We're just tenants here on your great big earth. And, and he, he just prayed to the God who made all this that the rains would stop. Went into time of, of, of worship. And before the first song was over, before the first song was over, um, the clouds began to part and it began to get a little bit brighter out and the rain stopped. And I remember sitting there in my, having heard about God, but never really experienced him. Not to the, not to that. I mean, I had seen answered prayers, actually pretty huge answered prayer. But, you know, as I had gotten older, um, I had, that became a, a, a fragment of the past. And as the rains began to stop, in answer to the prayer that he had prayed, I remember sitting there like, what in the world? Like, that is crazy. And I remember worship that day being a little bit sweeter and my songs having a little bit more conviction in them, whatever I knew about God, but they had a little bit more pep in their step because I had seen the God that we were singing about. I learned something very important that I would kind of piece together through the words of Matt Redman later. You can only sing of things that you have seen. You can't sing of things you haven't seen. And that's why worship begins in this place with seeing the wonder and the awe and the majesty of God. Worship doesn't begin with me coming into the sanctuary and saying, here I am, God, I'm ready to worship you. So help me to get into that right frame of mind and help me to juice myself up and to give myself to worship. Worship always begins with a vision, with a sight of the greatness of God. And worship is simply a response to what we know of God to be. 
It's always a response to what God has revealed to us. Do you see then, it has nothing to do with the melody of the song, and it has nothing to do with the condition of my, uh, of my life at that time. It has nothing to do with what I've been through this week or what I went through this morning or what I ate for breakfast. It has everything to do with who God is and his greatness. And so Psalm 24 begins lifting us up into this heavenly vision that God owns everything, and because of that, he's worthy of all that we are. And then the cry of the psalmist goes deeper than that, says, I don't want to just see God for all that he is out there, but I want to get an up-close and personal glimpse of this God. And that's what the rest of Psalm 24 leads us to see. So what do we see in this psalm? I just want to hang three major themes here for us to look at from Psalm 24 by which we can hang what I'm about to talk about. The first thing we're going to see is the cry of Psalm 24. Then we're going to look at the ticket, and then we're going to look at the gospel. Okay, what is the cry, what is the ticket, and what is the gospel as we see it in Psalm 24? What David establishes is that God is massive, he's huge, he's worthy of our worship, and once you see him, you'll be driven into worship. But he's not content with that. What is the cry? What is the cry that we see? It says in verse 3, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place. Okay, so here's what David is saying. We're all at the bottom of the mountain here. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, all of that belongs to God. We're dancing around worshiping at the bottom of the mountain, but if God's presence is located at the top of the mountain, at the top of the hill, he's saying, I don't want to stay down here. I want to get up there so that I can see you, that I can worship you. And the cry of the worshiping community is, how can we get from here up to there? Because I don't want to be content. If I can be closer to God, I don't want to have these seats. In fact, if you flip it the other way around, if you're at a basketball game and you can get courtside seats, why would you settle for nosebleed seats? That's what David is saying. I'm not okay, he says, dancing around on the foot of the mountain of mediocrity. I want to scale. I want to ascend. How can I get to that place where I can see God in intimacy? That's the question that he asks. And he asks, is it possible? The reason this is important, guys, the reason it is important in the history of Israel, right? God's presence was located in this time. Okay, this is before David builds the temple. I'm sorry, Solomon builds a temple where God's presence would be centrally located. But God's presence moved around symbolically in what's called the Ark of the Covenant. If you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, it's a box that was, uh, that was erected so that during the uh, wandering in the wilderness, they could have the presence of God with them. This was what uh, Indiana Jones is looking for in Raiders of the Lost Ark because it symbolized the presence of God. That's why he was on an all-out mission to find the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. So here you've got the Ark of the Covenant, and God dwelt in that place symbolically. So wherever the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant was, it meant God's presence with his, was with his people. Throughout the history of Israel, they had this weird relationship with God. A lot of times they worshipped him, but then other times they would fall away from him. They would worship him, they would fall away from him, and usually it was, if it was a good leader, a good judge would rise up and would lead them back to God, and then the judge would die and they would fall into chaos again. Another leader would rise up and lead them back to God. But the relationship that Israel had with God's presence was kind of like, it. in one way, it was like God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant is like a good luck charm. If we have it, we're going to be all right. If we don't have it, we're in big trouble. The problem is God's not going to be anybody's good luck charm. Nobody's lucky rabbit's foot, right? Nobody's four-leaf clover that you just pull them out when you need a little bit of help when you go to battle. God says, your heart is far from me, even though your actions are saying the right thing. Your words are saying the right thing, but your heart is far from me. I will not be relegated to a relic in your pocket that you pull out when you need me. And so in this superstitious relationship that they had with God, maybe some of us have a relationship like that with God also. God, when I need you, I'll pull you out. You'll be there to help me. And as long as I say I'm a child of God, I've been baptized, and I'll be protected from all the harms of this life. That's not how it works. See, the people of Israel, the challenge with them, the problem with them was that they wanted the best from God, but they weren't willing to give their best to Him. And because of that, you see this throughout the true stories of the people of God, that they would, get, they would get rocked in war. They would get demolished in war. There would be famine times. There would be drought times. There would be bad crops. There would be, uh, there would be animals and locusts that infest the, 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 the earth and, and would eat up their crops. And they're like, God, why, why is this happening? Like, we're, we're doing our best to worship you. We're going to worship you on the Sabbath. And God's saying, hey, your hearts are far from me. Your actions are there, but your hearts are not. 
And so for a long, long time, that's the way that they lived. They're like, we don't, we don't need the presence of God anymore then. If, hey, listen, if, God's, if we've got the Ark of the Covenant and he's not blessing us, then we don't need it. And so the Philistines took it. The Philistines began to realize that them having the Ark of the Covenant doesn't mean blessing for them. It actually brought a curse upon them. And so they gave the Ark of the Covenant back, but the people of God were okay just keeping the presence of God arm's length away. And it began to affect their spiritual lives. It began to affect, their, it began to affect everything in their lives. And they realized that the glory of God, once so weighty and heavy amongst the people of God, has now departed from Israel. And for many, many years, that's the way that they lived. They called themselves the people of God, but they were okay just being in the same zip code as God. They didn't need to be intimate with him, as long as we're in the same area. As long as we still bear the name of God, he's going to be for us, right? He's going to fight our battles, right? But they realized something very quickly. Actually, it took them a long time, but we could see this very quickly. A lot of us want the best from God, but we're not willing to give our best to him. And it shows up in our lives. It shows up in the way that we live. It shows up in the things because God wants to have our hearts. And so Israel is just getting smashed. They're getting rocked. They're getting beat up by different nations. The Philistines, their worst enemies, are constantly devouring them. And so finally, it gets to the point where King David, a man after God's heart, realizes, guys, we can't live like this anymore. We cannot live with God at the outskirts of our lives anymore. We have pushed God to the side for the sake of other things. We've pushed God to the side for the sake of our convenience, for the sake of our dreams, for the sake of our wishes, for the sake of our idols. And we need God to be brought back to the center, to his rightful place within our lives. Does that feel like you today? that you've pushed God to the side of your life. He's still there, arm's length away. You can still say that he's there and you still come to church and worship him. You want the best from God, but are you giving your best to him? That's the question that he asks of you this morning. Because the cry of Psalm 24 is a cry of a people who are sick and tired of not living the way that they know God wants them to live. And they say, God, we don't want to live and meander at the, this kind of a table of mediocre spiritual living anymore. We don't want to settle for what we see of you when there's so much more that we could have. And so David says, we're bringing the Ark of the Covenant back. We're bringing the presence of God back front and center to where it ought to be in the presence of, uh, uh, at, the, at the top of the hill, at the top of Mount Zion, which is the heavenly city. And there God's presence is going to dwell in the center of our lives again. And the question that the worshiping community cries out in wonder is, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Because I, David's like, I want to get to that place. I want to get to that place where I'm not comfortable with being chummy-chummy with God. I want to live in the awe and the wonder and the intimacy with God the way that he intends for us to live. He says, how can I get to that place? And though others who are wanting to follow him say, who can dwell in his presence in that way? I wonder if for some of us, like we know that there's so much more of God that we could have, but because we're comfortable with where we are, there's no urgency, no drive, no longing, no hunger. We're okay with just being okay in our relationship with God. I know that there's a, there's a Korean drama called It's Okay to Be Okay or something like that. That's fine. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying we're okay with keeping God a distance away from us, and we're all right with that, and that's not okay. I t let me tell you a sad story. I'll tell you a sad story. Last week, before this worship service started, and this is, this is kind of why I hate that we're, we're, we're streaming this stuff, because there are people who, who, who don't worship, who aren't harvesters who, who watch this, and sometimes I just want to talk about in-house stuff, and that's cool, and so whatever. The last Sunday, um, before this service started, um, I needed to go in the cafe because I wanted to close the door because there was noise outside. And I was kind of st uh, stuck in this in-between because worship service had already started. A presider was up here and was given the announcements and would give the call to worship. And so I was, I was standing in the cafe, um, just kind of listening and watching. 
And what was really sad for me was that when worship service started, maybe there's like 20% of us were in here. And as I was watching, as people walked in, like so many people were just were, were coming in in the parking lot five minutes, six minutes late. And they're walking in, there was no sense of urgency. Like, I'm late for worship of the holy God who has so much that he wants to give to me. And just walking and, and getting distracted, turning around, talking to people in the parking lot as, as they get later and later and later and later. I think when I was younger, like I would have gotten really upset and really angry. I think as I get older, I just, I just felt really, really, really sad. I just felt sad that, like, we're okay. It's coming into worship God like that. Announcements. Yeah, and maybe that's why some of us don't know what's going on in church. Nobody told me because you ain't here. Ah, uh, yeah, worship service, I just really didn't feel like we want the best from God, but are we giving our best to Him? Like so many times, we become comfortable with just being comfortable with where we are. Some of us are worshiping online, and there's legit reasons for doing that, but hey, can I say it again? Some of you, the only reason you worship online is because you're comfortable worshiping online. There's so much more of God. Like so much more of God. You know how you know that you've become comfortable with the current state of your relationship with God? That when we sing the songs of the church, they don't feel like they're your songs anymore. Feel like other people are saying, Christ is mine forevermore, and that's the greatest joy of life. But it doesn't move us anymore. You see other people being, being moved and you're like, that's their song. Christ is his, hers forevermore. But for me, it's just Christ is mine forevermore. That's awesome. You know how you know is that you, you meant it and you experienced that in the past, but you ain't experiencing that now. You don't believe that now with the same level of conviction as you once did. There's so much more of God that we could have. And he wants to, it's like, he, it's like God has, he's his master chef and he's made this piping hot meal of whatever it is that it needs to be eaten piping hot and he's so excited to give it to you this morning. And every Sunday he's here and he's ready to feed you and you're like, God, hold up a second. I gotta do some other things. Don't worry about it. I'll catch up with it. I'll microwave it when, you, when, when, I'm, when it's time for me to eat. And we're eating these cold meals and, and, and God wants to give us so much more. But we're okay with a hot meal gone cold. And we're okay living off of another day's blessings. And we're okay living off of what we experienced a month ago because that sermon a month ago was so good. Or we're okay living off of another time and another part of our lives. And we've become okay. It's being okay with where we are. And sometimes we're singing another person's song. You can't sing of things you haven't seen. And the cry of the psalmist is, how can we get to that place? Because you see, the higher you go, the better you can see, right? A few weeks ago, I was in North Carolina at a retreat, and at part of the retreat, like a group of 15, 20 of us, we went hiking up a mountain. And at the end of it, like, we took a bunch of pictures um, it was really cool, and then we came down, and, and um, during that evening worship service, before that service, I was just asking some of the folks who went there. I was like, hey, um, was, that, was that hike pretty hard? And all the middle schoolers were like, yeah, it was really hard. It was really tough. I was like, did you, did you think it was going to be easier? And they're like, no, nah, we knew it was going to be hard. I was like, you knew? Why'd you go then? Why'd you do it? Like, oh, man, because we knew that once we got up there, it was going to be worth it. What was worth it? the pictures, the view, all of just seeing what we saw from up there, we knew that it was going to be worth it. That's why mountain climbers 
risk their lives to get to a peak, to get to a summit, because the higher you go, the more you can see. And when it comes to worship, you cannot sing of things you have not seen. And so the cry of the worshiping community, and man, oh, God, let us be a generation like this. The cry of whose hearts is, how can we get into that place? How can we get into that place where we can see you and worship you and experience more of you? First thing we see here is a cry. Second thing is a ticket. How do we get there? How do we get there? Verse 4 tells us the ticket you need in. He who has clean hands and a pure heart does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. David says this ticket into the presence of God has four things. It's not just hunger that allows you to see God. You've got to have purity. You've got to have holiness. There's got to be a cleanliness and a purity of our lives. Some of you may want God, but you can't see Him. You have a hard time seeing Him because we're not clean before Him. Some of us, we don't want God because we've been content and our hands, our hearts have been sullied. What does he say? There's, there's different aspects to it. He says clean hands. That symbolizes your actions. Are your actions clean? Clean hands. Like we know during COVID-19 how important it is to have clean hands and how that defiles us when we don't. What kind of a king, what kind of a monarch would allow a servant to come into his presence serving him food if his hands have not been clean? God too says, your hands need to be clean to come into my presence, your actions. That means how you treat people. That means how you look at people. That means how you talk to people. We don't excuse it as, oh, that's just, you know, that's just part of who I am. I'm never going to change. No. It says there's got to be a longing, there's got to be a desire for cleanliness in our, in our, in, in our lives, in our actions. It says your hearts can be, be, be unclean by financial uh, impropriety. It can be unclean by, uh, by, by the way we spend time with people or, or uh, putting ourselves in compromising situations or letting our eyes be exposed to things we ought not be exposed to or by putting ourselves in, in, in places where we're uh, allowing all kinds of junk to come into our lives. When we steal, when we cheat, when we cut corners, whatever it might be, our hands, our actions need to be clean. But even though you might think your actions are clean, he says there's another level to it. It's not just your actions, it's your attitude. Your heart has to be pure also. Everyone else might look at you and say, you know what, there's nothing. They, gosh, they're a symbol of, of perfection, of holiness, of integrity, of purity. But God looks into our hearts. What if by some kind of accident, our hearts and our thoughts were to be able to be projected for people to see? What if like that Jim Carrey movie, Liar, Liar, the thoughts of your mind were the things that were blurted out? And though everyone says, oh, you know what, you're so... A lot of people mistake quietness for holiness. Oh, because they're so quiet, they must be so holy. But what if your hidden thoughts were verbalized? And would people still think that way? pure heart, it says, who does not lift up their soul to an idol. That means if, as we declare our devotion to God, when you get baptized, it is a funeral to yourself and it is a wedding to God. You pledge your loyalty and devotion so long as you shall live to God and then we give our hearts to other idols, to other things that we worship that are more important to us than God. If there's something that takes precedence over your life before God, a relationship or a friend or a certain level of status or even a job or a possession or wealth or fame, whatever those things might be. God says, you can't serve both me and those other things. A, few, um, a couple years back, I was on a, on, a, on a plane flying up and I was sitting in the aisle seat and these two ladies, I don't know, late 20s, 30s, sat down uh, in the two seats next to me. And I was on my way to a retreat. And so a lot of times if I'm traveling, I just want to put my headphones on and just silence out everything. And so uh, I did that. Um, 
But as they sat down, like, they, were, they were talking a lot, and one of the gals was messed up. She was just crying, 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 crying. And so um, I was kind of curious. I was kind of interested in what they were saying. And so even though my headphones were on, um, I was like, part of me was listening to what they were saying. Part of me wishes that I, I hadn't done that because uh, the girl next to me who was pregnant found out that her husband had not been faithful to her. And she was messed up by it. The fact that she had a, you know, she was having a, a baby made it all the harder. And so uh, as I was kind of eavesdropping in, in my heart, I was just praying, Lord, just ugh, what a messy situation. Give comfort to this girl. And so the, the friend next to her got up to go to the bathroom, and this girl just sobbing. Her hand is in her face, and she's crying. So I took off my headphones, and I was like, hey, uh, I didn't mean to eavesdrop on your conversation, but I heard what you were saying because y'all talking like mad loud so like everybody can hear you. <laughs> I was like, I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but I heard what you said. And I was like, I hate, I hate that you're going through this. And she grabbed my hand and I started reciting Psalm 23. I'm just kidding, that didn't happen. That was last week. Um, she started, she just started crying and um, I said, hey, I've been a, yeah, just since you guys started talking, um, I've just been praying for you in my heart. Um, and she's like, oh, she said thank you. Then she's like, what do I do? What do I do now? Um, you know, I, I, I told her a few things. I was like, at the end of the day, I can't, I can't tell you what to do. I tell you what I would do. I tell you what... Bible says, uh, as best as I know about uh, the gospel, um, ultimately, you know, it's, it's you got to make a decision and you got to live and die with it. But I thought about that, right? Just a heartbreak of someone who has been pledged loyalty and absolute commitment only to have that broken. Loyalty given to another. What ought God do when we have pledged our devotion and our lives to Him, and we lift up our souls to idols and bow down and worship them as if they mattered as much as God did. And then he says, or swear by what is false. He's talking about holiness, purity in our actions, our attitude, and our allegiance. And then, of all that, he says, that impacts the way that you relate to other people. See, the, the challenge is, unless we see the implications of it, this is the ticket that gets us into the presence of God. And if we don't have this, then we don't just miss out on whatever this world says we miss out, we miss out on seeing God the way that our hearts long to see Him. See, media doesn't tell us that when they glorify sin, when they talk about sin, when they make sin to be this amazing thing that, that has no consequences when we watch it on TV. Maybe like in, in a few percentage of the shows, you see that there are consequences of that sinful relationship or consequences of that sinful thing and, and, and something happens. But, but by and large, what we see in music, what we see in the movies, what we see on TV talks about a consequence-less sin. That sin is fun, it's funny even, it's something to be mocked, it's something to be laughed at. This week, I was, um, I was thinking about this time when our uh, son Elijah was about, he was like either two or three years, he was just learning how to talk. Um, and he, he still loves, but he loved at the time eating um, this Korean soup called tteokguk. It's a soup made of like rice cake, little rice cake discs. And he loved eating them, and he, he loves eating them. I don't know why he loves it so much, but he loves it. And this one piece of duck fell on the table. And I remember for whatever reason, he picked up that, that, that duck and he threw it at me. And then I said, Elijah, no, 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 you don't do that. You cannot do that. You cannot play with food. You cannot throw food. You do not throw food at daddy's head, okay? You don't do that. And so I said, do you understand? He said, yes. I said, Elijah, um, why did you do that? And he looked at me and he said, because it was fun. <laughs> he told me it was fun to throw duck at my head. 
The world tells us that sin is fun. Something to be laughed at. Something to enjoy. But God says, when you play with sin in that way, it keeps you from being able to see God, so much more of God that we need to see, so much more that he wants to reveal, so much more that he wants to show us. And when we don't, uh, we don't seek to fight for this kind of holiness and purity within our lives, this is what ends up happening. The cry is, how can we get into a place of intimacy? The ticket is, you've got to be absolutely pure. The third thing then we see is the gospel. See, because at, at the end of it all, it says, this was what happens. You'll receive blessing from the Lord. You'll receive vindication from God as Savior. Such is a generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. And then He invites us to pause and to think about this. The third thing we have to ask ourselves is that, well, but, but okay, th there's a ticket in. Like, how clean do we need to be? Like, how good do I have to be? Because I'd still like to have my fun, but I still want to see more of God also. Like, is it an all or nothing deal? Like, how, much, how, much, how, how far can I go on the spectrum of sinful fun or fun sinfulness? How far can I go and still be able to stand in the presence of God? At least, at least if I can get within earshot of Him. How, how, how good does it have to be? Well, it's interesting because there are a lot of times in life in which you may not have a ticket in, but you can still work your way through. Some of you have done this when it comes to like movie theaters. You get a ticket to a certain movie, and after you're done watching it, you got nothing to do, and so you'll kind of sneak into another movie within the same theater, right? You'll do that, and you're like, I didn't have a ticket, but I can still watch it. You feel guilty maybe, but part of it feels like this is kind of fun, and if you're with a friend, it can be a little bit funny. You can sneak into places even without a ticket. Um, one of our uh, folks in our congregation um, who's now an elder candidate, uh, he and I used to go to Orlando Magic Games and get uh, like $10 tickets, and then we would sneak down to the bottom and try and sit courtside. And I tell you what, we snuck in there without a ticket, but every time we did, we felt mad guilty. And we're like, at any moment, somebody's going to tap us on the shoulder, and we're going to get caught, and we're going to have to walk of shame all the way up from the court, all the way. We don't do this kind of stuff now. That was like a long, long time ago. But these days, I mean, in life, you can sneak into places if you don't have a ticket. So how good do you have to be in order to get a ticket into the presence of God? How clean do my hands have to be? You remember Moses? For the sake of one, for the sake of one sinful act, Moses was barred from entering into the land that was promised to him. How pure does my heart have to be? What Jesus said, right? Blessed are the pure in heart they will see God. The Beatitudes talk about an impossible standard. We have to be absolutely 100% pure. Uh, what about idols? Like, what about idols? The rich young ruler did everything right because of one idol in his life. He walked away empty, not having the hope of Christ. And one act of falsehood led to the demise of Ananias and Sapphira. In fact, how, how, how clean, how pure, how... What does it take in order to get into the presence of God? You have to be absolutely 100% perfect. And with that sad note at the end of verse 6, David invites us to pause and to think about that. See, our sin isn't just something that's fun, it's amusing, it's comical, it's, do you understand, our sin is what bars us from the presence of God. Like we cannot get into the presence of God because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so as hope dies, there's the cry and, and then when we see what the ticket is, we realize, gosh, Where's the hope then? What is the hope? Well, the hope for the people of God in those days came because they were looking forward to another. 
And so rising, in verse, rising up in verse 7 is a crescendo of hope that they never knew, that we look back on and we understand. He says, as the heads of the gates figuratively were laid low, as the doors were laid low in depression and despondency, because nobody could bring the presence of God into that holy place, then David invites them as hope arises. He says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. He's like, what? Wait, <laughs> What do you mean the king of glory? Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. That's who he is. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, the king of glory? The Lord Almighty? He is the king of glory. That's what he's saying. Through the, through the channels of time, through the centuries future, David is looking and seeing that God himself is going to be the one who ushers us into the presence of the Almighty. What is it? What, what's happening here? There was only one ticket, only one ticket into the presence of God. That ticket was sold out. Nobody had it except for Jesus. Do you remember as we've gone through the book of Psalms through the summer, you understand that the number one interpretive key to understanding the book of Psalms is to know that every psalm can either be sung by Jesus or sung about Jesus. Who is the king of glory? Who is the one who takes us into that place? Who is the one who had clean hands, who had a pure heart, who didn't lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false? The only one who could do this was Jesus. He who stood in the presence of God. You see, there's another way in to get into a place if you don't have a ticket. You understand this if you live in Orlando and you've got friends who work either at the amusement parks or who work at a restaurant or work at a movie theater. If you don't have a ticket, if someone who's on the inside comes to the outside where you are and gets you, they can bring you to the inside. <laughs> You can't get the ticket because we couldn't possibly earn it, but Jesus becomes the ticket for you into the presence of God. You see, clean hands, pure heart, no idols, no swearing by what is false, that's not something that we bring to God and say, God, here I did it. It's something that God gives to us that we receive. We come empty-handed before God and we say, God, nothing in my hands I come. Simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And because of that, God takes people whose hands are dirty, whose hearts are impure, who worship idols, who give ourselves to all kinds of falsehood, and Jesus comes for us. See, Jesus climbed a different mountain. And as he climbed the mountain of Calvary, he did not go to receive blessing from God and vindication from God. Jesus climbed the mountain of Calvary, and in that place, instead of blessing, he received the curse of God. And instead of vindication from God, he received condemnation from him. Why? Because in order for us to stand in the place of perfect holiness, someone had to leave that place of perfect holiness. But in order for us to receive that blessing, someone had to pay the price. See, Jesus received the curse that you and I deserved for our unclean hands and our impure hearts. He received the curse for our idolatry and for our falsehood. And in our stead, he was crucified for us. So that in his stead, we now can receive blessing from God and vindication from our Savior. And we can be part of a generation that seeks the face of God in this way. See, this is a call of God in our lives. It's because we have received the ticket that is Jesus that he begins to work in us to change us from the inside out because positionally we are already there in the Holy of Holies. Now practically from that place we labor in order that we might fight for holiness and fight for purity and fight for devotion in order that we might see more of God in our lives. There's so much more of God to know. I want to close by um, having us look at a picture of a little animal that lives in Europe, northern Europe in Asia. 
Um, this is a, an, an animal called the ermine. It's a very cute little thing, right? I would, I would not mind having No, I, I would mind having it as a pet. It's, kind, it's cute, though. Like, I wouldn't mind looking at that picture once in a while. It's really cute. Northern Europe, Asia, if you ever go there, you might be able to see it. But the thing about the ermine is that its fur is completely white during certain seasons, like this season. And its fur becomes super, super, super valuable to hunters and trappers. They get it and then they sell it. This is like a really price, priceless animal. And then in order to, to, to capture the ermine, they know that if they like do anything to, to, to sully it in any way, then its value depreciates exponentially. And so the way that hunters and trappers catch the ermine is that they find out where it lives. And usually they live in a tree, in a hollowed out part of a tree. And that becomes a doorway, and then they live in that hollowed out tree. And so what trappers do is they will send out dogs to chase down the ermine and to run it. And the, the dogs know they shouldn't bite it, they shouldn't eat it because it, it devalues it. They just chase it to its home where what the hunters will do is they will put mud and dirt all around the entrance of the tree, the ermine's home. And the ermine is so committed to its own cleanliness and purity. I don't know who taught it that. I think God just put it in their, in their minds to, hey, don't, don't sully this for whatever reason, but they're so committed to their cleanliness and the purity of their fur that when the ermine gets to their home and they see all the dirt around it, they will refuse to go in because they do not want to dirty themselves with anything that would lead them to become defiled. The hunter would then catch the ermine and will sell its fur for lots of money. That's not the point, but the point is this, that the ermine values its purity and cleanliness even more than life itself. The ermine loves purity for purity's sake. We don't love purity for its own sake. We want to be clean. We want to be pure. Why? Because we know that the pure in heart are blessed. Because the result of that is that we will see God. Isn't that worth fighting for our purity? Isn't it worth it to seek not to defile ourselves in order that we might have more of God so that next week when we come to worship Him, that we would be able to sing a song of one we've seen? Let's long for that. There's so much more of God. He wants to give it to us, that we would hunger for it, that we would thirst for it, that we would trade our, our defilement for His purity, and that we would climb the mountain of God together. Let's pray. Let's take a minute to pray to the Lord God right now. Have you become comfortable with where you are in your relationship with God? You're okay having a little bit of anger in your heart? You're okay every now and then hurting your coworkers because of gossip? Have you become comfortable seeing God from a distance? but never really experiencing Him to the point where your eyes have become so dry when they once used to become moist. Your heart has become hard where once it was so soft. The Lord God today invites us to a new start. He says, will you come back to me? There's so much more that I want to give to you, so much more that I want to show you. Higher heights, deeper depths that I want to take you in in your relationship with me. Would you long for that? Would you desire that? Let's spend a minute right now, just about 60 seconds, praying to the Lord in confession, asking the Lord that He would cleanse our hearts, that He would wash us under the fountain of Jesus' blood so that we might become clean in Him, so that we could hunger for more of Jesus. Let's pray like that for a minute. Can we do that? Yeah, just pray on your own, quietly or out loud. Let's confess, let's come back to God. Let's pray, Lord, I want more of you. I want to see you in a deeper way. Yeah, let's pray like that for a minute.
you fall afresh upon us now, Lord. Lord, we need more of you. Lord, that you would cleanse and you would purify our hearts. Cleanse us like a flood and send us forth, Lord. We want to know you. We want to love you. We want to give our hearts to you in devotion. Lord Almighty, we need you. Lord Almighty, we need you. Lord Almighty, we need you. God Almighty, we need you. Before we come to this table of God's grace, this holy communion, can you just pray, Lord, I want to see you more. I want to see you as better than sin. I want to see you as bigger than the temptations of this world. I want to know that there's so much more of you and I want to hunger for that so much that I would lay down my idols that I would lay down the impurities of my heart and of my hands, that I might have more of Jesus. Can we just pray that? Lord, I want more of you. Let's pray for that hunger, the cry of the generation of David. Let's pray that that would be our cry today. Can we pray for 30 seconds like that, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll come to this table. Father in heaven, we thank you. Man, we, we had this massive dilemma. The cry of our hearts was to be in your presence. But the reality is that we couldn't stand because of our sin. But thank you that because of mercy, because of your love, because of forgiveness and because of grace, you gave your one and only son in order that he would come And though he lived the life that we didn't live, he stood condemned for us so that we could stand in that place of holiness and blessing and favor and vindication. Thank you that you made the greatest exchange, the most unfair trade, but you did it because you loved and you loved a people undeserving. Lord, would you fill our hearts then with thankfulness as we consider the length to which you would go in order that we would be your children. Help us to love you and to see you more, to long for you, to hunger for you. Thank you that you love us. We love you because you've loved us first. We thank you so much. Meet us at this table of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.